Good morning. Good morning. We're a small crowd today. You're going to have to do better. Good morning. Good morning. Much better. Welcome to Northminster Church this morning on this rather chilly, overcast day. Uh, no matter what has brought you here today, we are glad that you are with us. I want to say a special word of welcome to anyone visiting with us this morning. We are honored by your presence and hope that you will participate in all aspects of our worship service, including communion. We take communion here at Northminster every Sunday. There are instructions on the insert to your order of worship. If you have not been with us before, or just follow the folks around you, they will lead you in the right direction. We do have gluten-free wafers available if that's something you need, so just get my attention when you come up, and I'll make sure you're provided with that wafer. Uh, you will notice our beautiful flowers this morning. These were arranged by Susan Curry. Uh, I think she did a marvelous job with all of the colors. Uh, and we hope that after the service, you will take some of these flowers to brighten your day or someone else's. So do please feel free to do that when worship is over. We are having youth tonight. I don't see any of our youth here right now, but we are having youth tonight at 5 o'clock. And we're going to wrap up in time to go watch the big football game. Uh, coming up on our calendar, although it's a few weeks ahead still, is our Ash Wednesday service, the beginning of Lent on February 14th. I also want to announce that my last Sunday before I take my maternity leave will be February 18th. So Daryl Cluck, who many of you know and have heard preach before, will be filling the pulpit for the eight weeks that I am gone, and he will start on the 25th. So I wanted to give him, even if the baby isn't here, I'm going to go ahead and take that time to be home and do my best to get ready. I don't know if I'll be able to. I also have some, unfortunately, have some sad news. Um, Janet Dawson, who many of you know and love, is now officially on hospice at St. Francis. 
she is asking for no visitors, please. And Tracy Sandow is also at St. Francis. He is uh, in uh, critical condition. The family will be making some decisions here in the next few days as they figure out exactly what is happening. But so far, the news is he's being well taken care of. So please keep those families in your prayers. Uh, Janet's children are here. Her son, Matt, is here from Canada. Um, And so she is surrounded by loved ones, as is Tracy, but certainly challenging times for both of those families. So please keep them in your prayers. With all of that said, let's take a deep breath together. And those of you who've been here know we do this every Sunday at this point in our service to help our minds and our hearts and our bodies kind of catch up with one another. We do this to hopefully quiet the voices in our heads that sometimes aren't very kind to us. And we do this to remember that this time we have together is special and it is limited and it is precious. So take a deep breath. Allow that breath to not only fill your lungs, but breathe from your diaphragm like a musician. As you breathe out, breathe out your to-do list. Breathe out the laundry that is never done. Breathe out homework that maybe isn't finished. Breathe in again. Know that you are loved by God exactly as you are in this moment. And then if you would, please join me in our call to worship that is printed on the front of your order of worship. God comes into a world filled with uncertainties and darkness. God embraces the broken and wounded. God is the candle shining in the darkness of our days. God is the one who makes all things new. Amen.
Good morning. Yeah, come on down, Dad. You guys want to know a secret? I don't think the grown-ups knew that song. Were they very loud? No. No, I think some of them were faking it. That's okay, grown-ups. Even if you don't know the song, you can sing. It's all right. Okay, question for you. Ready? Have you ever seen anybody who needs help before? Yeah, you have? So let me tell you a story. A few weeks ago, I was driving. I was going to Ruston. And I saw a guy whose car broke down. He had a flat tire. You know what a flat tire is on your car? And you can't drive a car with a flat tire. And it was starting to get dark. And I thought, you know, maybe I should pull over and help him. But I didn't. I know. And I drove back by a little while later, and he had already gotten help. Someone was there fixing his tire. He was okay. But I didn't stop and help him. And there are lots of reasons I didn't. I didn't feel very safe. It was starting to get dark. I was by myself. I'm having a baby. So there's lots of reasons I didn't stop and help the stranger. But I probably should have. Yeah. So it started, made me wonder. Yes, ma'am. Um, if you should, why might help him call home, and he might have taken you. He might have. He might have. And so sometimes when people need help, it can be kind of hard to decide if we should help them. Not because we don't want to, but because sometimes it might not be safe for us to do. And it, it made me wonder if I made the right choice. Now, he was okay, like I told you. Someone was there helping him when I drove back by. But I wanted, there's a story in the Bible that's a little bit like this. So Jesus goes to his friend's house. His friend's name are Simon and Andrew. And when he gets there, he realizes their mom is really, really sick. Jesus never met her before. She is a total stranger. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't hesitate. He walks over. He heals her. She is perfectly healthy after that. So Jesus didn't have any hesitations. He just did what he should do. He went right there and helped her, just like the guy on the side of the road with the flat tire needed help. Now, I'm not telling you you should help everybody you see, because sometimes it isn't safe. Yeah. Yeah. Did somebody come help you? Um, my dad came up to work, and um, he ate me a badly. So your dad helped you? Good. Parents usually help us when we need help from them. So I'm not telling you to make choices that aren't safe for you. You guys always need to be safe and take care of yourself. But Jesus shows us that we can help lots of people, that even if we don't know somebody, we can still... Maybe if we're in a uh, parking lot and we see someone whose groceries fall out of their car, we could help pick them up. We can hold the door for people. We can um, wait our turn, let somebody go ahead of us in line. There are lots of ways we can help people we don't know without putting ourselves in danger. And it's the kind of thing that Jesus teaches us to do. And I don't ever want you to be afraid to do the right thing because it can be a little scary but I want you to remember that's exactly what Jesus does and what Jesus teaches us to do is the right thing. So think about that this week. 
keep an eye out for people who might need some help. And if you can, if it's safe, I want you to think about helping them with whatever you can do to help them, because that's something we are all capable of, is helping other people, right? Right, all right. Can we talk after the service and you ask me your question? Excellent, all right. Turn around, face the congregation. Sit up nice and straight and tall. Remember, you're in charge of this, and the adults can join in if they would like. I will say the first line. You say it back to me nice and loud. I see the face of God in you. I see the face of God in you. No, I heard Miss Debbie more than the kids. Come on, kids. You can be louder. <laughs> the love of Christ comes shining through. The love of Christ comes shining through. And I am blessed to be with you. Oh, holy child of God. Oh, holy child of God. Amen. You can go back to your seats now.
Psalm 17. I am crying aloud to you, O God, for I long to know your answer. Hear me, hear my plea, hear my prayer for help. Put your marvelous love on display for all to see, liberator of those who long for shelter beside you. Send them safely away from the enemies, ever welcomed by your grace. Keep close watch eyes over me, as the apple of your eye. Shelter me in the shadow of your wings. Protect me from the wicked, who are poised to attack, from the enemies swarming around me and closing in quickly. Rise up and confront them. Holy protector, I will look upon the holy face of God, and when I awake, for the longing of my soul will be satisfied in the glow of your presence. The word from the psalmist for us today. Lord Jesus Christ, when you walked on dusty roads or sat by glistening waters, you met people where they were. When you bent down low to touch the leper or raised your eyes to touch Zacchaeus' heart, heaven and earth were met. And so our prayer today is that our world will know your healing touch and your forgiving heart. That those who have been hurt by insincere actions and damning words will hear your healing voice. That those whose lives are filled with dark thoughts or unimaginable fears will know your peace. Walk beside those who are close to giving up hope and where life seems to have no point, where people struggle to make ends meet and fear the bailiff's knock on the door. And may all who weep and mourn or feel abandoned and unloved turn toward your voice, move toward your arms, and hear the whisper of your presence in the long hours of night. Inspire us and encourage us to bend down low, to embrace those from, for whom society has no time or patience. Raise our eyes upward to see the struggling patient and the exhausted caregiver. And where young and old stumble and fall, may we be there to offer support so that all will know your love that transcends all others. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. A reading from 1 Timothy. But even so, the Spirit very clearly tells us that in the latter times, some will leave the faith because of their devotion to spirits sent to deceive and sabotage. And mistakenly, they will end up following the hypocrisy of liars whose consciences are secured with a hot iron. They forbid marriage and demand abstinence from food. But God created all these to be received with gratitude by people who hold fast to the faith and really comprehend the truth. For everything God made is good. That means nothing should be rejected as long as it's received with a grateful heart. 
for by God's word and prayer it is made holy. Place these truths before the sisters and brothers. If you do, you will be a good servant of Jesus the Anointed, raised and fed on words of true belief, trained in the good instruction you have so clearly followed. This statement is worthy of trust and our full acceptance. This is what we work so hard for. This is why we are constantly struggling, because we have an assured hope fixed upon a living God who is the Savior of all humankind, especially all of us who believe. A reminder of God's goodness. reading from Mark's Gospel. Jesus and the disciples came at last to the village of Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee, and on the Sabbath day, Jesus went straight into a synagogue, sat down, and began to teach. The people looked at each other amazed, because the strange teacher acted as one authorized by God, and what he taught affected them in ways their own scribes' teachings could not. Just then, a man in the gathering who was overcome by an unclean spirit shouted, What are you doing here, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I see who you are. You are the Holy One of God. 
Jesus rebuked the spirit, saying, Be quiet and come out of him now. The man's body began to shake and shudder, and then, howling, the spirit flew out of him. The people couldn't stop talking about what they had seen and said, Who is this Jesus? This is a new teaching, and it has such authority. Even the unclean spirits obey his commands. It wasn't long before news of Jesus spread over the countryside of Galilee. Friends, this is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Possession. To be moved by strong feeling, influenced or controlled by something. To be, not, to be dominated or controlled from within. Synonyms. Mad, crazed, consumed, haunted, obsessed, frenetic, taken over, dominated. On May 17th, 2011, my possession began. That was the day, up to that point, the worst day of my life, that I learned of my parents' coming divorce. I didn't know it at the time, but on that day, two days after my 25th birthday, and the same day I completed my finals in my second year of seminary, a journey began in my life that I was wholly unprepared for. Except that calling it a journey isn't quite right, because journeys follow a path. There's a beginning, a middle, and an end, even if you only really become aware of those milestones when the whole thing is over. It would be more accurate to describe that day as having my foundation pulled out from under me and then watching pieces of myself collapse. Now, if you're thinking this sounds dramatic or worse, melodramatic, overblown, know that I am aware of that possibility know that I hesitate to share this part of my story with you because all these years later, I still don't quite have the words to express what that day felt like. But I share this story with you because it's a connection I can understand to our gospel, which contains this element of possession. And though we frequently, we frequently throw around the idea of personal demons or things that haunt us, how often do we honestly think about what it means to be possessed? Which is not, as it happens, how I ever would have described myself before this sermon. But until that day, until May 17, 2011, I wouldn't have believed it's possible to actually hear your own heartbreak either. Since that day, more than a decade ago, I have been moved by strong feelings. Remember, that was part of the definition. Anger, betrayal, jealousy, disbelief, intense grief. I've been consumed with the desire to hurt others in equal measure to my own pain. I've said things to people, namely my parents, I never would have thought myself capable of thinking, let alone saying. I've been taken over by anger at my loved ones, at God, at my friends whose parents are still happily married and therefore could not 
still don't understand what it's like to have divorced parents. I've been haunted by grief and shame. And on more than one occasion, I've retreated so far into myself, it was as though I was watching from the inside where it was safe as things happened around me. Of course, we've had, Eric and I have had worse days since this day in 2011. We lost a child in 2021. That was intensely more painful. And even now, whether it's my parents' divorce or the loss of our daughter, there are things that have long since scarred over, wounds that I still carry. And those things get touched, and I find myself in tears. Likely this is lingering grief and sadness in what was the worst two days of my life, but maybe it's possible to think about those moments, those intense moments of grief and sadness as a kind of possession. Now, before I go any further, let me make something clear. I do not believe I have ever had a foreign entity in my body affecting my behavior and emotions. I am responsible for all of the choices I have made. I don't have a sensitivity to holy water or crosses, so if you come up and flick me with water, it's not going to do anything. I don't plan to hang from the ceiling anytime soon. Indeed, we would be far better served to abandon our Hollywood-fed images of demons causing us to vomit and for heads to spin exorcist-style and instead think about demons as forces that are diametrically opposed to God's will. Rather than bless, they curse. Rather than build up, they tear down. Rather than encourage, they disparage. Rather than promote love, they sow hate. Rather than draw us together, they seek to split us apart. Jesus and the people in this story for Mark likely understood this and much more about demons because for them, demons and possession were real. They were the explanation in a time that did not have our knowledge of science or brain chemistry, that did not understand the connection between emotional disturbance and behavior, and in which mental health wasn't a concept. You hear me say this often, and it's entirely appropriate to say again this morning, context matters. Throughout the biblical text, context matters. That's vital to include in this conversation because our understanding of what's likely happening here is so divergent from what Jesus' understanding of what he's experiencing likely was. Context matters because Jesus is a man of his time. Our gathering here proves that Jesus' life and message transcend time and place, but we cannot forget that he is, that he was when he lived, a first-century Jewish man. He lives in a land that itself is possessed by a foreign power. He is poor. His level of education is questionable, though we know from the text that he can read and write. And more than likely, as this text shows us, Jesus believes in demons. Context also matters because just as Jesus was a man of his time, the biblical text is a product of its time. The evangelists who wrote the Gospels were as much artists as they were historians, as interested in telling a good story that would attract people as they were in getting the facts right. Now, this doesn't mean 
that the Gospels are wrong or uninspired. That's not what I'm saying. Their context is not historical record or uh, artistic creation. It is a combination of the two. They, the Gospels are both. They are an evangelical tool. And what this means is that each and every time we read the Gospels, we are invited to notice the details the evangelists, the writers, used and allow those details to guide us through the theological claims that are being made. So the detail to notice here in Mark is that Jesus' first ministerial act in this gospel is a confrontation, an exorcism. You'll remember that Mark is considered by most scholars to be the first gospel written. Hang on just a second. I am burning up. Could you turn the air down? Thank you. I apologize. I am a human oven at this point. Matthew, Luke, and John come after Mark. They were written later than Mark, and they pull from their own unique sources, which is why we get four stories of Jesus' first ministerial act. In Matthew, it's the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is teacher extraordinaire. In Luke, it's a sermon Jesus preaches in his hometown that makes people really angry. Remember, they try to run him off a cliff. And in John, Jesus first turns water into wine and begins his ministry with that gorgeous sign of abundance. But in Mark, his first ministerial act is an exorcism. So what does this reveal about Jesus? When you think about words to describe him, do you include exorcist? Teacher? Sure. Shepherd? Of course. We're comfortable with that language. King, savior, even rabble-rouser. I like that one. These are all descriptors we're fairly comfortable with, but exorcist? Maybe not. Mark starting his gospel this way is like a movie that starts with a fight scene. It sets a very specific tone. But unlike a movie, in which there's a possibility that the bad guy might win, there's no doubt who's going to be the victor in this showdown. Jesus starts teaching, and the spirit possessing the man protests, protests Jesus' very presence. But did you notice what the demon, what the unclean spirit said to Jesus? It's illuminating. The unclean spirit says, I can see who you are. I can see who you are. Do you get why that's really important? It's important. It matters because this demon, this unclean spirit, knows who Jesus is. This unclean spirit is the first entity in Mark's gospel to recognize Jesus as the Son of God, God's Holy One, the Messiah. Though Mark tells us that people are amazed by Jesus' teaching and his fame spreads throughout Galilee, it's somehow the ugliness existing inside of this man who recognizes Jesus first. And I think there are two reasons for this. One, Jesus as the Son of God has the authority of God. Notice in the story, the Spirit protests and Jesus cast it away with a single command, be silent and come out of him. In the Greek, Jesus literally commands the Spirit to be muzzled, like a wild animal. No prayers, no formula, no props. Jesus doesn't need anything like that. With nothing more than a few words from Jesus, this unclean thing 
that has been inhabiting the man is gone. Perhaps because from the moment Jesus starts speaking, it's clear he's someone, something more than a normal man. Perhaps this demon could sense it was tangling with something larger than itself, or maybe it was just scared of Jesus. That's some intense authority, friends. Number two, the demon recognizes that Jesus is not just an exorcist, which was pretty common in the ancient world, but something more profound. This unclean spirit recognizes Jesus as a boundary breaker, which makes this story in Mark, here at the beginning of the gospel, a signal that Jesus has come to oppose all the forces that keep the children of God separate from the abundant life God promises. Forces such as those who try to tell Jesus where he can go, when he can heal, who he can eat with, and who is socially acceptable. And as, I, as an aside, when I say the abundant life God promises, understand that I'm not talking about shallow prosperity gospel that tells you if you pray for the things you want, they will be given to you because you're a good person and God loves you. I'm talking about actual prosperity or flourishing that is found when you are in relationship, lifelong relationship with God. With this exorcism, Jesus doesn't automatically eliminate evil and oppression. Neither does he make it impossible for possession to happen again. And as Mark's gospel continues, we hear that more and more people come to Jesus for healing and to be exorcised. But he does deny those kinds of forces the authority or power to hold sway over people's lives. That starts here. Through his boundary breaking, Jesus is making it possible for God to be in the spaces which it seems God could never be in. Through his pretty intrusive entrance into all the places he isn't supposed to go, Jesus is present and he pronounces with his presence that God is here. Now some of you will remember, you're old enough to remember, the uh, famous Gordon Gecko line from the movie Wall Street. I'm just going to say I was a year old. I did not see this movie when it came out. But what he says is famous. Here's the quote. That greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Let me give you a little more current reference that gets to the same point. In The Wolf of Wall Street, Leonardo DiCaprio's character makes a motivational speech that includes this little gem. I want you to deal with your problems by becoming rich. All you have to do today is pick up that phone and speak the words that I have taught you, and I'll make you richer than the most powerful CEO in the United States of America. Friends, whether it's the more societally approved unclean spirit of greed, workaholism, or affluenza, lightly veiled but very real racism, the damage of addiction, anger at a colleague or family member that leads us to say the most hurtful things we can think of, jealousy and envy that push us to use our resources in ways we shouldn't, or simple selfishness that allows us to ignore the needs of others, can any of us say, honestly, that we haven't ever felt controlled dominated, or possessed by something that is clearly not the Spirit of God. 
I think if we're honest, the answer to that is no. Because in some point in our lives, we are all possessed by something. We all come into contact with an unclean spirit, however we choose to define that. But the good news this morning is that Jesus never stops breaking down the barriers that keep us possessed. If the story in Mark tells us nothing else, it's that Jesus has no problem being intrusive or personal or commanding. Emotions don't scare him, neither do messes. And if we're paying attention, we've already noticed that the possessed man was in the synagogue. The possessed man was in the synagogue, not outside it. Sometimes, encounters with grace and mercy are dramatic and sudden. They are Emmaus Road experiences. Other times, they're not. Sometimes, healing and restoration take no more time than having a pastoral visit over a cup of coffee. Other times, they take the steady support of an AA group or grief support network, anger management class, or a committed therapist who's necessary for years. But whatever the form, whatever the need, God is always at work, breaking boundaries and freeing us from those things that would possess us. Thanks be to God.
As we come to this time of communion, we remember that this is the table of the heavenly feast, the joyful celebration of the people of God. We are looking forward to eating with Jesus once again. Jesus brought us salvation through vulnerability. He became bone of our bone, flesh of our flesh. God, originally in the form of a baby, but then a grown man, made herself dependent on us, an infant, revealing the transformative power of giving and receiving love through human flesh, who grew into a man who continued to do the same thing. Friends, this is not my table. This is not Northminster's table. This is Christ's table. We are the guest, and Christ is the host. There is a seat here with your name on it, so kick off your walking shoes. Make yourself comfortable. We are on holy ground. All are wanted, and all are welcome here with our doubts, our shortcomings, our failures, our grief, our disbelief. No matter what brings you to this table, you aren't just tolerated. You are overwhelmingly welcomed and wanted. Thanks be to God for a love like that. Now, if you would, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. The night before Jesus died was a solemn time around the table. Because of his relentless pursuit of love, he would be seized by those in power. This shouldn't be a surprise, because still today we often crucify the ones who dare to risk it all on love and justice. But before he was taken, Jesus introduced this meal to his followers. For though he knew the end was coming, Jesus gathered with those he loved and trusted most. And as the night lengthened, he took a simple portion of bread. He blessed it. He broke it. And he gave it to them, saying, Remember me. And then in the same way, when the meal was over, Jesus took a cup. He filled it with wine, and he blessed it. And during his blessing of that cup, he reminded the disciples that he would go to the ends of the earth out of love for them. Friends, Christ makes us the same promise. Thanks be to God. Amen.
benediction. May God bless you with a distaste and superficial worship so that you will live deep within your soul. May God bless you with anger at prejudice so that you will work for justice. May God bless you with tears for those who sorrow so that you will offer comfort. And may God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you can make a difference in the world. Go be salty. Amen.